the Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Listeners, welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to be introducing the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? Hi, Nate. I'm well, thank you. Uh, It's good to join you again. I understand that you interviewed Harry Paul recently of OSIsoft, and he was talking about the good work that OSIsoft is doing with the EPRI uh, Cybersecurity Technical Assessment Methodology. That's a mouthful. Yeah, Harry's interview was quite technical. You and I are going to jump in so you can help explain things, some of these deeper concepts as we go. Um, Without further ado, without anything else, let's get into it. Here's my interview with Harry Paul. I understand that your team at OSIsoft is doing a lot of work with the EPRI methodology for vulnerability identification and mitigation. Can you tell me a bit about what you're doing? Uh, yes. So um, the Electric Power Research Institute, or EPRI as they're referred to, uh, ha- are working on a methodology for the um, identification and mitigation of security vulnerabilities in devices and software. And uh, as part of that methodology, uh, they do an attack surface characterization, um, they group related assets together, and then they allocate security control methods to protect assets. And then uh, once that asset is protected, there is an optional step to map the measures that have been taken to regulatory requirements. And um, where OSIsoft comes in is that in that first step of the attack surface characterization, there's an artifact called a cybersecurity data sheet, which is used for any device or software module that you're analyzing with this analysis. And there's the opportunity for vendors to proactively supply reference cybersecurity data sheets so that um, it can sort of bootstrap the analysis for asset owners. So OSIsoft has uh, decided to throw our hats in the ring and produce a data sheet for our uh, PyData Archive project, uh, PyData Archive application. And um, this is our trial run on this application, and hopefully we can expand to other applications in the future. But we see this as a great opportunity to supply uh, detailed security documentation for the community. So, Andrew, this this seems complicated. Yeah. Well, um, I had a chance to read the EPRI document. Um, as I recall, you know, the, the introduction was very good. It describes the, uh, the methodology as being about, now they don't use quite these words, but I, I interpret it as being about the difference between security and compliance. Security is about doing whatever we need to in order to defend ourselves against, uh, you know, the attacks that we see coming at us. Compliance is doing whatever somebody else has told us to do, whether it's useful or not. Um, so, for example, a lot of, of compliance-focused uh, advice out there for security says, um, you know, apply these rules. Uh, you've got to have passwords this long. You've got to, have, you know, change the passwords this often. And, you know, say, do this across the board, whether the device has a password or not, whether, you know, the device is even network connected, whether, you know, there's, there's, there's context to 
these risk assessments and uh, you know blindly applying uh, a whole bunch of rules is costly and so um, you know the EPRI approach is saying let's figure out what makes sense to do and do that rather than blindly apply a bunch of, of rules that someone else has told us to do. And now I deduce from that that this would be considered a risk-based approach as people call it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, it, it it is risk-based. Um, I can't remember if they use that terminology or not, but in my mind, this is exactly what it is. Um, and, you know, the EPRI approach is different in the sense that there's a lot of other advice out there on, on risk assessments, but that advice tends to be very high level. Um, the EPRI approach, uh, yeah, is, is detailed, it's technical, it's specific. It's basically a how-to. It's it's the first how-to that I've seen that is this detailed. All right. On that note, let's get back to Harry and hear what else he has to say about the EPRI approach. The EPRI methodology seems very focused on vulnerabilities, but modern attackers use permissions more often than vulnerabilities. They steal a password, they log in, they operate the software, they don't exploit the software defects most people call vulnerabilities. Is the EPRI methodology blind to these exploit permissions kinds of attacks? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Uh, one of the things that we appreciate about the EPRI methodology is that it tends to get away from the idea of specifically focusing on uh, distinct software flaws, and it thinks about uh, the idea of, um, of vulnerability in terms of the means existing for an attacker to perform a certain attack through a certain pathway with a certain mechanism, but the, those concepts are abstracted out. So when they refer to the term residual vulnerability, that's not uh, always a software flaw. It could be a software flaw, but it could just be that the means exist to modify uh, data at rest um, on uh, the file system. And the ways that that can be mitigated in terms of protection, detection, and recovery uh, are different. So uh, you, on one aspect, you would have access control. On another aspect, you have code security. Um, and, and, and through, through covering uh, all of the different attack pathways and all of the different functions of protection, you get a good, um, you get a good defensive posture for a justification for a good defensive posture of the asset. Um, I guess to give a concrete example of an attack sequence that we would uh, that we could use is if somebody, you could say that the the means exist to um, to steal process data in transit uh, via a wireless connection uh, with a man in the middle attack. And one of the security control methods in place to prevent that uh, would be a transport security mechanism. And so for the PyData Archive, the uh, PyNet protocol has transport security built in to the protocol to prevent uh, that particular uh, attack through that mechanism. I'm not sure if I directly addressed the full spirit of the question. Like they steal a password, they log in, they operate the software. So that's talking about insider threat, right? That specifically is is either insider threat, let's say they have the password legitimately and they do something, or it's that they've stolen a password upstream and then they use it. And so that's something that in the EPRI-TAM 
Um, you wouldn't, in a, for example, in a data archive spreadsheet, we would probably not cover, or we don't, we specifically don't cover the issue of um, of how you would prevent somebody from stealing the Pi system administrators administrators um, Active Directory password for like the user that they're mapped to in the Pi data archive. However, at the when you roll up the data sheets uh, into the relational groups I talked about in the initial introduction, that's where you would start to get some of the site level or the the functional controls that cover that that type of issue. So um, the data sheets don't exist in isolation. The data sheets are are used together as part of a system so that you can see where these residual vulnerabilities flow up and where um, where sometimes you'll have a component that may have residual vulnerabilities, but when you put it in the functional group, those vulnerabilities are not actually exposed and they're cut off at a higher level. Um, so there's really two, there's two mechanisms where that can, where this sort of issue can come into play, where functional grouping means that something's not exposed. And there's also the concept of the site specific measures being applied at a higher level. So I, I see the stealing a password as being part of, for example, um, the, the, that could be part of the data sheet for your Active Directory domain controller, or it could be part of your um, site-specific allocations. Now, Andrew, I think uh, I think we need one point clarified here. Epri vulnerabilities, as they see it, are these are actually attack paths, right? That's right. Uh, and in my mind, this is a very good thing. Um, you know, I think way too many practitioners. I mean, I can't. I don't have the numbers on, on the advice, but way too many practitioners, when they're talking about uh, vulnerabilities, they're thinking software vulnerabilities. They're thinking defects in software. And so they immediately say, oh, the way to mitigate those vulnerabilities is with uh, a patch program, security updates. But, you know, the threats that we face are bigger than uh, individual software vulnerabilities. So it's it's very nice to, to, to see that the, uh, the EPRI methodology is about attack paths rather than, you know, just uh, different kinds of things they think of as vulnerabilities. If, if vulnerabilities are attack paths, that's the right way to think about it. Right. And this may seem like an obvious observation, but there are a lot of attack paths in any system. Uh, does it even make sense to, to count them? It can be difficult to attack or to, to, to count attack paths. It, it depends on uh, on how you do it. I mean, um, the tool I'm familiar with is the Amanaza attack tree tool. It adds up all of the different combinations of attack paths that can reach into a site. Um, you know, different different uh, branches in the decision points that you know are taken into account. It's it's a combinatorial thing. It, it adds up to sometimes over a billion paths. Um, Harry points out that the EPRI approach is not this kind of combinatorial counting. It sounded like, um, you know, you take the components in the system with their, their descriptions of vulnerabilities, namely attacks that can impact them. Um, so you take that, you add them all up. 
So if you've got 100 devices, each with, you know, 20 vulnerabilities, you might have 2,000 that you're dealing with. And then you subtract the ones that go away when you group the assets together into systems. And then you further subtract the ones that are mitigated by security measures that you put in place, stuff like the Active Directory controller policies that, that he was talking about. Um, so it's adding and subtracting vulnerabilities, not multiplying them combinatorically. So it, it does sound like there's effort involved. I've never, I've never done this. Um, but it does sound like the numbers that are involved are such that it is possible to, to do the entire process entirely by hand. Um, unlike the, the combinatorical approaches where you really have to have a tool to manage them, they, they start getting into very big numbers very quickly. By hand? Interesting. Um, Harry has more details for us on, uh, on what we were talking about here. Let's return to his interview. Now, I understand that you're encouraging software vendors to participate in the EPRI approach by means of this data sheet you mentioned. What specifically are these data sheets? What's in them? Who uses them? So in, in real terms, what the, the actual data sheet itself is, um, is a Word document that has some very specific structured security documentation in it. And then uh, the current form of the mapping of the attack surface to the specific security control methods is documented in a spreadsheet. Now, in the future, the actual um, the actual structured mechanism that these are recorded in may change. Uh, for usability purposes, uh, the spreadsheet may actually turn into something that's in a database. But currently, the the first revision of the TAM is a Word document for the cybersecurity data sheet with uh, a Excel spreadsheet that has the mapping of the uh, attack surface to the security control methods. Um, an important aspect that goes that is a companion to the cybersecurity data sheet is the concept of a baseline configuration. Now, because the data sheet has uh, some pretty granular information and some in-depth analysis of the attack surface, a very important part of that is the deployment uh, architecture and the configuration of the system itself. So those, uh, there's a lot of decisions that come into play there that need to be documented in uh, the, the data sheet so that the data sheet analysis accurately reflects um, the posture of the product. So when you make a reference cybersecurity data sheet, um, you'll we'll have a baseline hardened configuration that you provide with it that says, this is the configuration that we use for our analysis. So if anyone is using that reference data sheet and they don't have the same deployment, they know which aspects they need to modify. So which security control methods uh, are in place uh, in the data sheet, or the reference that they have versus ones that maybe uh, are built into the baseline that they've opted out of that they need to adjust the data sheet for. So, Andrew, tell me what you, uh, what you heard in Harry's answers. Can you dig a little deeper for us into these data sheets, what they're all about? Yeah, the, uh, the data sheets are interesting. There, there's a lot of information in them. Um, I think what's important is that the data sheets are not created by uh, the, the end users when they're doing the analysis, the data sheets, you know, and all of the work that goes into them, that's work that's done once by the software vendors. 
and then the, the the end users take advantage of the work that the you know the investment that the vendors have made. So so it's commendable that OSIsoft is you know stepping up as a pioneer in this space and producing a data sheet for uh, their their flagship product. You know a lot of vendors do not document uh, the data flows and the file layouts in their products. Understanding these things is really important to designing a security system. Um, all data flows are attack vectors. And so we need to understand the data flows because we need to understand our attack vectors. Uh, we need to, you know, we need to know where to deploy our defenses and what kind of defenses to deploy. You know, the, the understanding what files there are in the file system and roughly what kind of stuff should be in, you know, inside each of these files. Um, this is vital if we are watching a system, you know, intrusion detection, or trying to understand what's happening in the system. We have to know what's supposed to be there so we can detect new things popping up, unexpected things popping up that might signal an attack in progress. I see. And is that where this concept that he brought up a few times of baseline configuration comes in? Yeah, um, the baseline configurations, in my understanding, they, they have to do with complex products. Um, you know, complex systems can be configured in a lot of different ways. The example that I recall from the, uh, the EPRI document was a Windows Server operating system. A, a Windows Server can be configured as a domain controller. It can be configured as a web server, as an application server. It can be configured as lots of different things. Um, a hardened baseline describes uh, a set of functions, let's say a minimal set of functions that are, are needed in uh, a security context to, you know, to, to get a job done. Um, the, you know, documenting the baseline means we, the vendor does not need to produce uh, a data sheet that's six times as long with all of the possible vulnerabilities due to all of the possible configurations. They recommend a uh, you know uh, uh, a recommended hardened configuration, and now we need to deal with the the vulnerabilities and the attack paths that are that apply to that you know in a sense minimal configuration rather than you know try and solve all the world's problems. Yeah, and for my next question for Harry Paul, I sort of I admitted to him that this all sounded a bit complicated for me. Uh, so he explained a little bit more about the essence of these data sheets. Um, let's hear what he had to say. Okay, so so this is getting a bit complicated. Your own flagship product, the PI server, is sometimes deployed on control system networks and sometimes on IT networks. The IT attack environment can be much more difficult than the ICS environment. Control system networks really should be much, much more tightly controlled than IT networks, especially regarding inbound information flows, and all cyber attacks are information. So how much of this complexity is really a reflection of the IT environment PI gets deployed into? How much really applies to control system environments, in other words? So um, the methodology is tackling a very complex problem, but the bounded approach makes the analysis finite and manageable. And part of making it that bounded and finite analysis is defining the architecture that you're covering. So um, with the data sheet that we are using, we are assuming that it's a in an operations network and we are documenting all the flows that are necessary 
for that Pi system to use in the specific deployment architecture that we set forth in the uh, baseline configuration. And so having all the information about the necessary flows allows for administrators to be confident in locking down the system with only the necessary uh, data flows required. And each data flow that's documented basically requires that you have um, the attack surface take that flow into account so that you recognize the different critical data types that are being um, that are being used in that flow. Uh, the the EPRI methodology is uh, very data centric in that uh, in the attack surface characterization that they have, they have 28 exploit objectives that they that they line up that an attacker would want to do, and 24 of them are centered around critical data. And so it's a matter of there's six different data types, um, and for each one, you look at the data in transit and at rest, and you look at the alteration and the uh, theft of that data. Now, Andrew, I've known you for some time now. Um, you've stressed to me before that there's a certain sense of ordering priorities when it comes to ICS security. Um, not that we shouldn't be thinking about everything, but of course, there's reliability and then there's safety. But a lot of what Harry's talking about seems to be data-centric. Is, is data really what we should be protecting, though? Well, there are different ways to think about, you know, the priorities for industrial cybersecurity. The data-centric approach is the classic approach. Um, and, you know, the EPRI methodology uh, goes into a lot of detail about data and information and protecting it. Um, and whether you look at the, the, the problem, the, the classic way about, you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability of data, or if you look at it in any of the other, you know, safety-centric, reliability-centric ways, um, it, it doesn't matter. As Harry pointed out, all cyber attacks are information. Every information flow, every information, every file, every database full of information, all of that information is a possible source of attack, a possible source of compromise if the information is coming from an attacker or if the information has been interfered with. So the 28 kinds of vulnerabilities, you know, different kinds of data vulnerabilities, this is EPRI's way of being thorough. It's EPRI's way of encouraging the vendors who produce the data sheets and, you know, everybody else who uses the data sheets. It's, you know, EPRI is encouraging all these people to consider all of the different uh, kinds of ways, kinds of vulnerabilities, kinds of attacks in their analysis. You know, it's it sounds like a lot, 28 ways, but really it's it's their way of encouraging us to look at all of the possibilities and to be thorough about it. I see. Now, my next question for Harry was a bit different than what we've been talking about here. Um, I wanted to know about the costs associated with what he and his firm are doing. Uh, let's hear what he had to say about it. So a lot of the EPRI research is vendor-funded. How much does it cost to get the background material for EPRI? To contribute a data sheet into the process, how much does it cost an end user to retrieve and use these data sheets? Does EPRI maintain a database of such sheets, and does anybody else? Yeah, so the, the EPRI report for the current released version of the TAM uh, we acquired for $300. Whether that price stays the same, um, I, I can't uh, attempt 
I can't testify to, but uh, the TAM workshops have no registration cost, and those were a great resource to reinforce the costs or to reinforce the material in the reports. Um, I think the greatest cost associated with uh, implementing a cybersecurity data sheet is definitely the man hours involved to perform the analysis. So the level of effort definitely varies from application to application, but it becomes easier after the initial analysis, and it even becomes easier as the analysis uh, goes on. Um, during the workshop with EPRI, they go through a very simple example for a single loop controller. Um, and so if you're working with uh, a very simple device like that, it's a lot easier than if you're performing the same analysis for um, something like uh, a Windows uh, Active Directory uh, domain controller server or a PyData Archive server. Um, so uh, EPRI is also working on supporting tools to streamline this, streamline the process. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the attack surface characterization, uh, or the attack surface and the security control methods for each of the attack um, uh, exploit sequences is currently documented in a spreadsheet, but they are, are looking into tooling to make that uh, a much easier um, and streamlined process for um, people who are implementing cybersecurity data sheets. Uh, in terms of the distribution of data sheets, uh, EPRI is giving vendors flexibility on the dis distribution of their data sheets. Um, that was one of our uh, concerns at first was, you know, whether or not we would own the data sheet that we make because we would not want to create something and not have the ability to update it as we needed to. And uh, EPRI does allow you to own your data sheet and distribute it. Um, and so we plan to share our data sheets at no um, additional cost to our customers by putting them uh, open source on GitHub. Why is ownership of data sheets important? Well, um, if you think about the data sheets, what are they doing? They are documenting uh, characteristics of the vendor's products. Um, Really, they're documenting characteristics of a, a certain version of the vendor's products. And the vendors are constantly, you know, enhancing, fixing bugs. They might issue a security update that changes, you know, that deals with, with uh, you know, one of the issues that, that's become a hot point for their customers. And now they need to change the list of vulnerabilities of attack paths in the data sheet. Um, you know, technology products of all sorts they change over time. The vendors who who are producing these sheets, um, you know, I'm guessing most of them are going to regard the data sheets as part of their product documentation. And vendors generally do not want to surrender, you know, give up control of their product documentation by handing it off to someone else, putting it in a repository, and now they, the vendor no longer has the ability to update the documentation as the product evolves. I mean, if, uh, you know, if a, a customer uses an out-of-date version of a data sheet, designs a system, and, you know, the pen tester comes in and shows them a hole that they hadn't anticipated, who are they going to be unhappy with? Are they going to go after the repository and say, you should have updated your data sheet? Or are they going to go after the vendor? It's, it's both reputations that are at risk. And so the vendors, you know, when they invest in this stuff, they want to be able to, to control their own destiny. Now, for my final question for Harry, I actually I asked something based on a tip that you had given me before I even got to talk to him uh, about this 
bow tie methodology um, that you were aware of from his circles. Um, it's a bit different than what he's been talking about in the majority of the interview. So let's, uh, let's listen to what that's all about. In the past, I've heard OSI soft people talking about a sort of bow tie, as you call it, methodology. What is bow tie? And is it related to this data sheet methodology of yours? Bowtie analysis methodology centers around a top event. And so you have some hazard. It could be steam, high pressure steam going through a pipe. Uh, it could be, you know, drinking a cup of coffee. It could be driving a car. There's something, uh, some process that's happening that there's a uh, risk of losing control over. So that's your hazard. And then the top event is when you lose control over that hazard. So um, we figured why not apply this methodology to software? Um, because operating software, especially in an ICS environment, could be considered a hazard. And um, we look at the top event of the bow tie as losing control over that software application uh, or a compromise of that software application. So on the left side of a bow tie diagram, you enumerate the attacks um, or the threats, rather. And then on the right side of the bow tie, after uh, this top event has happened, you look at the impacts of the top event. And then in between uh, the threats and the impacts, you put barriers between those things and the top event. Uh, so we saw this as a, a valuable tool to look at the multi-dimensional nature of these threats. Um, Bowtie analysis methodology is great because you kind of decouple the different attacks that can happen from the impacts. Uh, because it's definitely not a one-to-one -one relationship. There's a lot of different types of attacks that could result in an impact of, um, of you know, information disclosure, denial of service, or um, pivoting to other uh, resources in the same environment. And so, uh, Bowtie is a valuable uh, threat modeling tool that we use, and we still use it a lot uh, currently. However, um, the, the EPRI model is is different in that it's a much more um, it, it's really an entire methodology structured around vulnerability ident identification and mitigation um, that is trying to do something much more comprehensive than what we're doing with the bow tie analysis and uh, there's a lot more components to um, the, the EPRI analysis uh, however you could say you could look, you could model a similar analysis to what Epri's doing as a bow tie. If you looked at the threats as the, um, if you looked at the threats as the twenty-eight different exploit objectives that are outlined in the uh, Epri TAM, and then when you look at the different defensive barriers that you put in place, those could be the security control methods um, that are assigned in the TAM. Similarly, uh, the EPRI-TAM looks at different phases from the NIST cybersecurity framework in terms of protection um, and detection and response and recovery. And so those different actions span the bow tie both on the threat and defense side as well as that uh, impact reduction because response and recovery are really about reducing that impact after the fact. So, Andrew, it was your original inspiration to have combined these two ideas. Um, what is it about Epri and Bowtie that connects them? 
Well, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't really combining. I just, I knew that the, uh, the OSI soft folks had done some work with bow tie as well. And uh, frankly, I never really understood it very clearly. So I thought we'd use the opportunity to try and, and uh, get some understanding there. From what I heard Harry say, um, they do, the two approaches do seem very similar. Um, they're both looking at attacks. Epri calls them vulnerabilities. Bowtie calls them attacks. Um, you know, they're dealing with attacks and mitigations and consequences. Um, as I recall from, you know, other presentations I've seen and, you know, not understood as, as well as, as this one, um, you know, the bow tie approach is a way of visualizing the risk. Uh, you know, there's a diagram that you, that looks like a, a you know, a, a lopsided bow tie where you, you, uh, you list the, uh, the possible attacks, the mitigations, the, the leftover consequences. Um, so, you know, that's, to me, that's the similarity here. What I heard uh, Harry say is that the, the key difference, describing the difference you know, between the, uh, the, the bow tie and the EPRI approach, the word is comprehensive. Um, the EPRI approach is a comprehensive step-by-step approach to uh, assessing risk, cyber risk, and selecting and evaluating the impact of uh, security measures, security controls, they're called in other documents. You know, I like the idea of a of a picture of a bow tie. I think if Harry were able to to draw something for me, it might have made everything less confusing. Um, but what I'm getting from what you're saying is that uh, they both have their own approaches to reducing consequences, right? Uh, that's right. They're they're reducing. Well, they're 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 assessing. You know, they're. There, if you if you're proposing changes to a security posture or you're proposing a, a particular posture, you need to be able to evaluate um, if I put this thing in, what kinds of attacks um, are going to be addressed by the new technology or the new approach. What kinds of attacks are left over? The bow tie method. Um, shows you that for sort of a, a, a specific scenario, but then you have to put together a bow tie for every kind of consequence, every kind of, every piece of your system. And, you know, adding it all up is something that that uh, I haven't heard talked about in the bow tie methodology, whereas the, the EPRI method um, doesn't use the bow tie diagram, but it does... Uh, seem to be much more comprehensive. By the time you're done the EPRI method, you don't have to scratch your head and say, did I hit everything? You've finished all the steps. You've hit everything. Uh, that, To me, that, that seems to be the difference here. All right, Andrew. Uh, wrapping up here, what is the bottom line on EPRI? Uh, well, I'm, I'm certainly grateful for Harry, uh, to, to Harry for explaining the, uh, the EPRI approach. Um, it is a little complicated, but what I get out of it is that it is very specific. Um, a lot of other advice out there. Uh, for example, I'm I'm you know currently reviewing and preparing comments for the new uh, NIST, uh, you know National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST Risk Framework. Oh, hang on, I got the title here: the Risk Management Framework uh, for Information Systems and Organizations. It's the it's the 800-37 revision 2 it's in draft it's open for comments um, and I'm looking through it and it's got nothing like the detail that I see in EPRI it's very high level now you know to be fair I think the NIST 
well, it's even got framework in the title. The NIST framework is a framework. What's a framework? A framework is basically a checklist of every kind of thing that you could do. Whereas EPRI is a very hands-on, step-by-step, you know, specific approach saying, do this, then do that. And when you're done, you're done. Frankly, the EPRI approach is the first one that I've seen that is that specific. All of the other stuff out there is is very high level, very general. And by the time you're done reading it, I could never figure out, okay, so what's my first step? Whereas EPRI makes it very clear. So it's very nice to have had uh, an overview and it, an introduction uh, to the EPRI approach from one of the, the early adopters uh, of the EPRI methodology at OSISoft. On that note, thank you to Harry Paul of OSISoft, and thank you, Andrew, for explaining all of this for us. My pleasure. Always uh, good to talk to you. Until next time, this has been the Industrial Security Podcast.